Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. How's it? Are you well? Yeah, I'm in good shape. You? Good, good, good. I really want to ask you about, you know, we'll, we'll get to it. But first, I'm keen to know what you guys have been talking about over the last week. Uh, well, I think sort of one of the big talking points is uh, the vaccine story. This has moved on a little bit from two different sort of perspectives. One perspective is that there was some good news for the University of Oxford, where they are making one of the vaccines that the UK has in clinical trials for coronaviruses. Their vaccine that's gone into humans, when they've tested those humans, they find that those people have made antibodies and they've made white blood cells called T lymphocytes, both of which are important for fighting off infection. So that's a good piece of news. They haven't proved that those people who make those immune responses are now invulnerable to infection. That's the next step. But at the same time, it's encouraging because it suggests that uh, we're following the same path of the animals that were used in the studies that um, demonstrated those animals did develop defences against coronavirus when exposed to these vaccines. So that was interesting. The other perspective on this is the big story that came out in the last day or so that uh, there's pretty robust evidence that uh, state-sponsored actors, I think is the phrase that they use, in Russia were hacking into computers in both the centres in the UK where they are developing vaccines. One, I speculate, is Imperial College in London, the other, the Oxford Group, and trying to steal the intellectual property that's going into those oh. vaccines. And the evidence for this is apparently going back as far as February and March. No. Putin stealing, taking what's not his, underhanded deals, that would never, ever happen. Well, it's interesting, you know, because someone, when this was uh, put, put out into the sort of public domain yesterday, one person yeah. put on Twitter, well, uh, surely in the crisis situation that's a pandemic there shouldn't be any secrets from anybody we should share all the information everywhere and i had to point out that actually if you end up with someone stealing your intellectual property and they then patent it and then hold the world to ransom by selling it back to the rest of us at a hugely inflated price actually i do have a problem with that um i haven't had an answer to that reply yet but you can you can see the point i mean it's a big worry when you've got this sort of thing going on and, and this is not the first time i mean i've had um conversations with various people going back over a decade actually that we realize that universities are a prime target for this sort of thing this sort of nefarious activity because most scientists are not computer scientists they're not very good at computer security and they have sitting on their computers all this wonderful juicy information that's going to translate into patents and medical discoveries and other technological breakthroughs and there are lots of people who are much cheaper to employ sitting at a keyboard in a foreign country who can then hack into those computers relatively easily and steal a lot of this information and it can in some cases save the home country that's sponsoring the hacking millions and millions and 
many, many years of doing the work the hard way themselves. And uh, there's, there's evidence that this has been happening. So, yeah, this is just a, another nail in the in the international coffin of international relations. It certainly, certainly is. Now, the bright sparks around this country, um, you know, we've got taxis. Um, and, you know, you know, South Africa, I don't have to explain the taxis to you. You know what they are like. I mean, you get about 15, 20 people in there. And uh, initially... Taxi drivers were told, you know, you need to have your allowed 50 to 70 percent capacity. People need to wear PPE, etc. Now, government <clears> saying <throat> for short haul trips, so 20 minutes or less, um, you can fill your, ca- your, your taxi to capacity as long as everybody wears the mask. Remember, this is not a mask that stops you from getting the coronavirus. This stops you from sneezing and getting the droplets in someone else. And you must drive with the windows ajar, five centimeters. And they're asking for jammers to be put in. Now, I mean, just from from, from your perspective, does it make sense to fill a a car, a taxi, to capacity and on a 20-minute trip, you're saying the 20-minute trip's fine because you probably won't get coronavirus. Look, viruses don't have tape measures and viruses don't have stopwatches. The mm. thing that really matters about whether someone catches it or not is if they encounter an infectious dose. In other words, are they breathing in enough virus particles to shift the probability they're going to catch it from zero to one? And the way in which you can influence that equilibrium is you either get very close to somebody else for a short time or you stay at a distance from them for a longer time. But either way, there is an opportunity for enough virus to transmit from the source to the other person. And anything that puts people into much closer proximity for a prolonged period of time is going to increase the risk. And look, we all know when when we're in these situations, face coverings and all this, People get irritated by them, they fiddle with them, they take them on and off, they can't understand each other under the general hubbub, so they take them off to to yell and shout um, and make themselves uh, heard and uh, to eat and drink, etc. And all these things provide additional opportunities for the virus to spread. And at a time when you've got countries, including South Africa, with a lot of spread going on, I think that probably that they ought to be thinking more carefully about these sorts of guidances. Because the thing is, if you give people an inch, they'll take a mile. So if you say to people, uh, put uh, your capacity up to X percent, then people will go X plus another 50 on top and and we'll be back to square one. And the taxi driver, quite frankly, is more interested in making his or her money. So, well, these people have got uh, a livelihood. I completely get yes. that. And the point is that the reason it is not a coincidence that in some of the poorest communities on earth we've got the worst cases of coronavirus why because people that can avoid going on public transport or taking taxis or having to go to work and can work from home they're doing that people who have no choice in the matter and have to go to work and have to use these sorts of routes into work have to put themselves at risk they are often the people who are lower down the pecking order of society less well paid less choice in the matter, and as a result, they're, they're turning into the victim more often. And that's absolutely a fact, and that's what's happening in Brazil, yep. it's what's happening in India, it's what's happening Spot in on. some African countries. Spot on. Let's go to Ross in Thornton, Dr Chris Smith, the naked scientist, with you all the way through till 10. So let's ask those questions. I encourage you to call in on 021-446-0567 and WhatsApp 072-567-1567. 
Ross in Thornton. Good morning, Ross. Morning, yes. I'm trying to sort of facilitate some cooperation between organizations. There are two organizations. One is Shine Literacy and one is um, Tisanda Foundation. Now, put it to go a very long story short, in the Shine Foundation, we've got a lot of books. And the Shine Foundation is prepared to lend them to Sasanda Foundation to tell stories, which we do on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And uh, we read stories from books and show the pictures and everything. Now, what concerns me is this. In the library we've got at Shine, um, we've got books. They have been isolated virtually since the beginning of lockdown. So it just worries me. Most of us are in that very interesting age group of 60 plus. Um, And so we are vulnerable. And so I'm a bit concerned about any virus being carried, uh, although the books have been isolated to people who are the storytellers and are doing the Zoom um, storytelling online. So is there any risk? that those books could still be infected with virus. You can never say never in medicine. You can never say there is zero risk because there never is. But you have to take a a proportionate approach, which is what is the likelihood of the book being the source of an infection compared with all other sources? Now, there is a very slim chance if someone has got coronavirus and they touch a book that they could have enough virus on their skin or enough virus is coming out in their breathing movements and it's landing on the book that there could for a short while be an infectious dose there. And that's a fact. But if you then walk down the street and you encounter 15 other people and have a long conversation with them, you have a much higher likelihood of picking it up from them than you do from the book. So you've got to take it all into perspective and have a, have a perspective on all of this. The risk from a book is vanishingly small in the grand scheme of things. These viruses don't persist for very long outside the body. They're not very stable. They like being inside a nice, damp, warm human. They don't survive long outside that environment. So a book and a dry book at that, it's not going to retain viable virus for very long. And therefore, again, you've got to consider this on a spectrum. And this is at one end of that spectrum, actually getting contact with people, contact with surfaces that people are in contact with regularly, those are the risk factors here, not the odd object that's been in a cupboard for a while or incidentally is in someone's uh, hands for a short while. I think the risk from that is very, very small. And I can reassure you, I think what you're doing is great and I think the risk to you from what you're doing is low. Okay. Uh, That's great news. Thank you. And well done, by the way, for the good work. You've spoken to us about this before. We need more people like you, Ross. Thank you. Um, That is Ross in Thornton. Uh, let's go to, um, actually, we'll go to Joe in Kensington. Good morning. Good morning, Kino. How are you, sir? You're right, sir. Always good, and uh, the esteemed Dr. Chris Smith is listening. Good, good. Ricardo Root, I send the graph to you, eh? Ricardo oh, Root. my word, Lord. Yeah, you want to suit up the St. John's? That's correct. All right. Kino? Yes, sir. Morning to you. I want to know the difference. You call a meal, Afrikaans, a meal, and. Yeah. What the, uh, Dr. Chris, what's your, how do you know about the difference between the male and the female? Uh, the difference between the male and the female what? Of a male ant. Uh, uh, ant. Uh, ant. Yes. Oh, so this is very easy. No, it's very easy. <laughs> what you do is you drop the ant in water. And, and if it floats, it's male. Because it's boy ant. 
<laughs> oh no, Joe. Oh my word, Chris, you're hilarious. It's a boy ad. Uh, if you didn't catch that, then I don't know. But, but can you tell the difference, really? I mean, no, you can, because they do look different. The the ants in a worker ant colony, the, they're all females, a bit like bees, the workers are all females, and there are males that are drones, and their job is to do one thing, and that's to mate with the queen. And usually these social insects will only mate once, right at the beginning of their career as a queen, and they can store sperm for, in some cases, a decade or more. So a bee queen, for example, can store years' worth of sperm from multiple matings all in the first year of her life. She will then store that sperm for an indefinite period. The ants are similar, and the males look different. They're a different size. They're a very different um, body habitus, and, and they're largely redundant. Once they've done their mating, they don't do anything. It's the, it's the females in the colonies that do all the hard work. Ah, brilliant. Well, there we go. But Joe, you're going to remember the you're going to, you're going to remember the boy ant potato. Please, if anybody asks you, tell them that. Um, let's go to Kathy, Kathy, and Rhonda Bosch. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Good morning. Um, Cape Town, as you may know, is quite a paradise for bird watchers, and one of the places that the bird watchers like to go is to the sewage farm because uh, a lot of birds go into the settling ponds. Yeah. Now those nature reserves are likely to be opening within the next week. How dangerous is it to go there with aerosols in the form of nice smells floating around um, from an infection point of view? This is a, a very good point, Cathy. And in fact, my colleagues at Murdoch University in Perth, Australia, published a paper last year where they were looking at seagulls. And initially they started in one part of Australia. They since went all over the continent and they were testing seagulls to see if they were carrying bacteria, and specifically human bacteria. And their findings were quite worrying, because what they found is that seagulls were carrying human superbugs. They can prove that they were human strains of the bacteria, because you don't find those strains in nature, except in the the context I'm referring to. And their suspicion is that these birds were catching this in places like sewage outfalls and also litter bins and that kind of thing. So it is a concern because birds can pick up a range of different infections and carry a certain uh, range of things that may not harm them but could be passed on to humans. When it comes to viruses, though, it's different because viruses are very fussy about the sorts of species that they can infect and the sorts of animals they can grow in. There are some viruses that are quite good at crossing the species barrier because it's part of their life cycle. A really good example of this is, for instance, yellow fever or dengue fever. These viruses are very good at infecting us, but they also are capable of infecting and multiplying in insect cells. But the vast majority of viruses, including this new coronavirus that's making our lives mayhem at the moment, this is not capable of infecting insect cells because insect cells don't have the right markers on the surface of the cell that would allow the virus to get in. So um, birds also are not susceptible to the infection with the new coronavirus. People have tried. They didn't manage to infect chickens in experiments with it. They could infect dogs. They could infect cats and ferrets and things. So mammals, like us, they do have the right cell types. They are susceptible to infection. But more remote or distantly related to us animals, such as birds, are not susceptible. So it's unlikely that birds are going to pose a threat to us in terms of uh, passing on coronavirus. Okay, Francois and Hart Bay. Good morning, Francois. 
Hi, good morning. Um, vaccines, why do they take so long to be developed? I mean, I, I get that there's trials and it's, it's tested on humans and then on, uh, or first animals, then humans. But, but I mean, in the, in the beginning, when, when this virus came out, they said it could take up to 18 months. Why does it take so incredibly long to develop a vaccine? I mean, what, what are the processes that are involved that makes it so long to, yep. to get to a vaccine? Okay, well, the number one reason is safety. You could make a vaccine tomorrow, but would it actually work? You don't know. Would it be safe? You don't know. So you have to go through painstaking experiments to find out whether or not you've got something that's going to work and whether or not you've got something that's going to work and be safe. Because what you don't want to do is either make people who are vulnerable already, who need the vaccine, have some kind of awful reaction to it, or lull them into a false sense of security, thinking they're now protected, when in fact it doesn't work, because both are awful outcomes that would would actually be a terrible waste of resources and, and a further cost to human life. So you have to make sure that whatever you do is going to be safe and it's going to be effective. We have never made a vaccine against a coronavirus that's worked. And we have uh, never made one against this new coronavirus because we didn't know it existed until just six months ago. And we've never made a vaccine in just six to ten months. So this is a very tall order because it's very hard to cram the learning that needs to be done to discover how a new virus operates and what it does to our body and therefore what we have to stop it doing to our body and to get that learning and turn it into this would make a good vaccine to protect against that and then turn that into all of the above which is a safe vaccine that's effective that does what it says on the tin and then can be produced at massive scale. We're talking about needing 16 billion doses of this because we suspect we may have to vaccinate everyone on Earth more than once. There are roughly 8 billion of us, and that means for two doses at least for each, that's 16 billion doses. This is not a trivial undertaking. So all of these things, the the creation right through to the supply, distribution and mass manufacture all have to be taken into account and planned for, and they're really tricky to solve on this sort of scale with such uh, limited resources and in such a short time. Okay, Chris, thank you for that. And then Villian Cryfontein. Hi, Villian, last question. I, uh, I'm an old man. I have this problem sometimes that for no reason my heart starts racing up to 155, and then it switches back to the normal 60s. I'm just wondering what it is, if you can give me some idea here. Well, anything that's a disturbance of heart rhythm is called an arrhythmia or dysrhythmia. And this is common, as you know, lots of people have this, and there are lots of different types of arrhythmia. When you get runs of them, and normally everything is fine, but then you go into a run of this, there's a range of reasons why this is happening. And where it's coming from in the heart and what the prognosis is the best way to get this looked at is to go and see a doctor who can do an ECG in other words an electrocardiogram and assess how the heart is performing normally and if this is something that comes and goes what they'll probably need to do is give you what's called a 24-hour tape or an event recorder and this is a device that you wear that captures the heart rhythm over a prolonged period of time hopefully capturing some of the abnormal rhythms or they give you an activator, which you press a little button when you know it's happening, and it captures the heart rhythm electrically at that time. And by looking at the pattern of that, 
doctors who are called cardiologists who spend their lives looking at the heart and know how to read these rhythms like a book will see exactly which bit of the heart is probably causing this and therefore that will give you information about how best to control it and it may range from very simple things like drugs to control it through to uh, more serious interventions but until you get the diagnosis then it's impossible to speculate but uh, that that would be my advice get get this assessed and get the diagnosis chris as always much appreciated and really thank you for the question thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in r&d over the next two years the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities the nation where great talent comes together visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work live and move to the uk